0: If you have your Bibles with you today, turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. We continue our series on the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did I take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many basketful full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Father, we pray that we would understand, that we would have insight, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, and that we would know the reality of the satisfying relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Today, we're going to be looking at the satisfying compassion of Jesus Christ, and there will be three aspects of that. The first is that the demonstration of how Jesus alone can satisfy. Secondly, will be the truth that if you refuse to be satisfied by Jesus, you will not be satisfied. And then thirdly, we need to be schooled that Jesus is the means of satisfaction. So first, the demonstration of how Jesus alone can satisfy. Again, with verse one of chapter eight, in those days when Again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. You remember last week we talked about the fact that Jesus had been in the uh, an area northwest of Judea, a uh, predominantly Gentile area, and then he moved over to the, um, the northwest, the northeastern side, first northwest, then northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And this was, again, a predominantly Gentile area. And uh, people came to him for healing. And so this great crowd came uh, from the region and was with them uh, for three days. And so we see here the express uh, reference to Jesus having compassion. I have compassion on the crowd he had compassion about a physical need and we see in scripture that there are uh, various ways in which Jesus explicitly is mentioned as having compassion for instance when he fed the 5000 prior to this this was the feeding of the 4000 when he fed the 5000 we read in Matthew 9:36 that he had compassion because the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd in Mark chapter one, verses 40, verse 41, we read that Jesus had compassion on the leper. He healed him. He had compassion on people and healed them. In Luke seven thirteen, for instance, he had compassion on a widow at the death of her son. There was a funeral procession coming through town and Jesus stopped it, having compassion on this woman in her grief over the death of her son, raised to life uh, the son once more. And Jesus cares about you. Jesus cares about your problems. He has compassion on you as well. Now, you might think, I'm not going to ask God for anything because he wouldn't care for me. Or some of you might think, well, I've asked God for things and he hasn't given me the things that I've asked for. Maybe he really doesn't care for me. And there's a lot of mystery. Uh, We don't know the plan of God. We've, We've sang of the sovereignty of God. We know God is in control, that he's sovereign over every situation. And he's not only sovereign, he's not only in control, but he also has compassion. And so we can be assured that he has compassion no matter what's going on in our lives. And no matter or not whether he answers our prayer the way we want it answered, when we want it answered. It's like... Children uh, in their physical need and perhaps you've experienced this as parents. You have children that are too young to understand. They have to go to the emergency room for treatment Um, and they don't uh, they don't understand why they're being poked and prodded and jabbed. And yet with mom and dad there, uh, they know that mom and dad care for them and have their best interests in mind. And they trust that whatever's going on here, though it doesn't seem very pleasant, that ultimately Mom and dad have their best interests in mind. Peter reassures his reader, readers in the first uh, epistle of Peter, chapter 5 or 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In the context of the book of First Peter is many trials, many difficulties. Some of it was persecution for faith in Jesus Christ. But Peter also says you're enduring trials of many kinds. And we're to go to our God because he cares for us. And this includes the problem of food and the lack of food. The people have been there for three days. They're out of food. They've come from all over this area of the Decapolis. And so some from a great distance. And uh, and then he says this in verse two, I've compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They were famished. Uh, They were in danger if they went home of actually fainting on the way home. And so the disciples asked the question, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You might think, well, disciples, Jesus fed the 5,000. You saw them do it. Uh, There might, in the language of this, be a little bit more um, uh, positive conveyance that maybe they might think that Jesus might be able to do something, but they certainly weren't setting the table when Jesus said, we have this need to feed people so when they go home, they won't faint on the way there. They didn't say, all right, we know what's going to happen. We're going to start setting the table, Jesus said is going to do a miracle and feed them. And so Jesus, again, teaches his disciples once more, he can satisfy our need from hunger. Verse five, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that, they, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Have you ever been famished before? I mean, really hungry. So that you really, really wanted something to eat. Somebody recently recommended to me a, a survivalist show on television. You know, these people go in, they get flown into some far-flung region in the middle of some frozen, desolate place, and they're all out there on their own, and, and they have to survive. And the one that survives the longest wins the prize at the end. And so what do they have to do? They have to build shelter. They have to, to have water that they can drink. They have to have fire, and they have to have food. And so what happens after 40 days, 50 days, 60 days, when many of them are essentially starving to death, they're not getting enough calories, not getting enough um, sustenance, they begin to dream. What do they dream about? They dream about food. Uh, There was one contestant uh, who talked about dreaming about being at home. And there was this table set out with this lavish spread of all different kinds of food. And anybody could come and have as much food as they wanted to eat. And as he was approaching the table, he woke up. Not very satisfying, right? Well, the people were famished. And Jesus has compassion. And the result is that Jesus satisfies in a way that only Jesus can I remember a comment that, I never met him, but Susan talks about her grandfather after a meal saying, I have dined sufficiently. And I remember somebody from seminary that was from a, a little bit of a backcountry area and his phrase was, I'm full as a tick, which is a little different. Uh, one sophisticated, one not so much, but it means the same thing, right? Being satisfied. But only Jesus can satisfy your deepest needs. You know, your mama could cook a great meal, I'm sure. And I'm sure she could go into the pantry and almost out of nothing, she could provide a meal for the family. But your mama can't take seven loaves of bread and a few sardines and feed 4000 plus people, can't you? And so this satisfaction by Jesus here is an image both of physical satisfaction and complete satisfaction that only Jesus is capable of doing. Now, before we turn on to turn to the subject of more full spiritual satisfaction, let's not downplay the need for physical health, physical compassion. Just this week, I was at the grave uh, of Angeline Manning. She uh, had been a long-term member of our church, 92 years old. Many of you know her, many of you do not. And um, as we were there at the grave site, I was able to say, the Bible says that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And there's great encouragement in that, that, that our souls go to be with Jesus immediately. But we will not be like Casper, the friendly ghost, for all eternity. And not that we're like Casper, the friendly ghost, in heaven. But you understand what I mean, that, that one day we will have a body again. We believe in the resurrection of the body, that our body will be like Christ's resurrected body. And we uh, will have a raised, incorruptible body when Jesus Christ returns. And so he meets our physical needs and he meets our deepest physical need in eternity. And he meets our ultimate spiritual needs as well. And he can satisfy you now in incompleteness in eternity. The famous U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've looked here, I've looked there, I've looked in this, I've looked at that, and I haven't found what I'm looking for. And there's a sense in which that that that's true, isn't it? I mean, if you eat a meal, you're going to get hungry again. If you drink water, you're going to be thirsty again. Uh, Whatever satisfies in an immediate sense uh, will need to be reinforced again. And uh, there's nothing in this world that is going to be satisfying here and now in completeness, in fullness. But we can find what we're looking for We can find it as we come to Jesus Christ, who is the one who can satisfy. And if you refuse to be satisfied by Jesus, you will not be satisfied. We turn to Mark chapter eight, verses 10 through 12. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district, the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, again, for those of you who care about the travel log, Jesus is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And now he travels back over with his disciples on the boat to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, Judea, predominantly Jewish area and Who does he meet? The Pharisees. And what are they doing there? They're there to argue with Jesus. They're there not to listen to Jesus. They're there not because they want to see Jesus, except for the fact they want to argue with them. And they ask for a sign from heaven. Now, perhaps like you, when I read this first, I thought, well, you know, wake up and look around uh, Pharisees. I mean, he just. He just fed 4,000. He's fed 5,000. He's done all kinds of healings. You saw when Jesus healed. Uh, there are many times the Pharisees saw that. But what the Pharisees are asking for is something in addition to this. He, they're asking for a, an independent sign from heaven confirming that Jesus is who he says he is. So uh, if you go back to the Old Testament, we see examples of that. One example Is in the days of King Hezekiah. I'll read from Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1. It has to do with Isaiah the prophet coming to Hezekiah, telling him uh, what the word of the Lord is. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. So through the prophet Isaiah, God comes to King Hezekiah and says, I will add 15 years to your life, and the Assyrians will not take Jerusalem. I will protect you from that attack. But then we find that God graciously was not necessary. Isaiah simply should, uh, Hezekiah should simply listen to Uh, the prophet of God. But he graciously confirms this with a sign. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. Right. So there's a there's a sundial of some sort and God says that I'm going to do this miraculous event and I'm going to confirm my word from this, by this miraculous sign that I will do from heaven. The Pharisees wanted this kind of sign. It wasn't sufficient for them that Jesus, who is prophet, priest and king in his prophetic role, came and proclaimed things to be true. And he manifested mighty acts of God. This wasn't enough. They demanded a sign. And Jesus said there will be no sign given to this generation. No confirming sign like this, like Hezekiah had. And we find that the, that the Pharisees came to Jesus with a lack of faith, with a lack of trust, with a lack of interest, with a lack of openness, with hostility. Uh, with a lack of desire to come to Jesus and receive from him. And if you would not come to Jesus, if you would not receive Jesus as your satisfaction, there will be no satisfaction. You know, the disciples, even when they were sort of clueless, they, they at least knew where to go. <laughs> we're going to go to Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus. We might not have all this put together yet. But we know that Jesus is going to be the source of our satisfaction. People look for satisfaction in all sorts of ways. Uh, Emma McKee, in an article, um, wrote of George Harrison's first wife, Patty Boyd, and um, in George Harrison's search for satisfaction. She said he would be spiritual and clean and would meditate for hour after hour. With no chance of normality, during those periods, he was totally withdrawn, and I felt totally alone and isolated. Then, as if all the, all the pleasures of the flesh were too hard to resist, he would stop meditating, snort cocaine, have fun, flirting, and partying. Although it was more companionable, there was no normality in that either. She said that both types of behavior made her feel increasingly distant from him. Boyd began to worry when she noticed a distinct change in Harrison when he used the drug. George used coke excessively, and I think it changed him. Cocaine froze George's emotion, emotions and hardened his heart. So yoga didn't satisfy. Cocaine didn't satisfy. You can seek to be satisfied in a career, in some good things, right? In a career, in a significant other, in a spouse, in a child, in health, in wealth, in a possession, you can win $3.3 billion in the lottery. It's not going to satisfy. Nothing will ultimately satisfy but Jesus Christ. Following him, trusting in him, trusting him with our present reality and with our eternity is what satisfies. As Augustine said in his confessions, you have made us For yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. God himself said in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, 1 through 3, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live and I will make you I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Come to faith, come with faith to Jesus, not an antagonism, not in doubt. But if you won't do that. If you will not seek satisfaction in Jesus, you will find no satisfaction. We need to be schooled that Jesus is the means of satisfaction. And he left them, this is verse 13, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them. and And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And here again, Jesus is telling a, a parable. Uh, he's uh, telling a metaphor uh, that he uh, intends for the disciples to get. Uh, they don't get it. We'll talk about that in a minute. You know, but what is this metaphor? Beware of the, the, the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Um, now, in the parallel account uh, in Matthew, we find out that, uh, that in fact part of that, the, the leaven of the Pharisees has to do with their false teaching. So leaven in bread, you have dough. Uh, leaven uh, changes and uh, in, in, is totally involved in, the, in all of the, the bread, all of the dough until it has its effect. And we're to watch out for false teaching. We're to watch out for the teaching of the Pharisees. But it's interesting here in, in Mark, he also includes Herod. And we know that the Pharisees and Herod wouldn't be teaching the same things. They were very different. And so when we include Herod in the mix, we also ask, what else is Jesus potentially saying that we should be watching out for and the disciples watching out for? Well, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we find that there was one thing that brought the Pharisees and Herod together. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So they both understood that politically uh, there was an advantage for them working together against Jesus. And so it would make sense for the disciples to watch out uh, that the uh, Pharisees and Herod were in league. But there's another way in which uh, Herod and the Pharisees uh, were similar, and that is they both looked for a sign. Remember the Pharisees looking for a sign in Luke chapter 23, verse 8. It says when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Maybe some of you remember uh, the musical uh, Jesus Christ Superstar King Herod song, one of the more well-known Songs And it went like this. So you are the Christ. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. So if you are the Christ, you're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. That's what Herod wanted. Herod wanted to sign. The Pharisees wanted to sign. Neither one of them came to Jesus in faith and trust, but in antagonism. Watch out. But whatever it was, whatever the nuance was, it's clear that the the main point that Jesus is making here and that Mark is making in our text is that they missed the boat in terms of what Jesus was trying to say. They missed the metaphor completely, Uh, and Jesus schools them on this, and they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are, you har- are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Guys, I'm not concerned about bread, right? Get a clue. There were 5,000 plus people uh, and five loaves fed all of them. And there were 4,000 plus people and seven loaves fed them. I think one loaf could handle us quite well here in the boat, don't you think? I think I can provide for them. Uh, They didn't understand Jesus provision and that in fact Jesus was able to do these things in terms of physically providing food f- providing bread that he wasn't all hung up on the issue that they forgot the bread they missed the bigger picture and we think how dumb you know the disciples are they're they're really not very smart are they I mean we would in their instance certainly certainly know certainly believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can satisfy and we wouldn't be. Pastor, why are you even preaching this? I mean, I get it already, right? You know, I don't I don't need this. Uh, oh, it's for all the people that don't yet have it down, right? No, we, we all need. It. I need it. It was great going through this text uh, this week to be reminded that Jesus alone can satisfy and that he has compassion and he will satisfy us as we come to him with our needs. And indeed, our, our most significant, our biggest need, Jesus alone can satisfy your biggest need. And what is your biggest need? It's, it's your problem with God, your estrangement from God. The Bible says you're at enmity with God as evidenced by your sin. And we need forgiveness of sins. That's our biggest need. In Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, through none other, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, met with his disciples, and it's recorded in Luke 24, verses 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then finally, Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the only means of meeting your deepest need. Don't ignore him. Don't reject him. Place your faith in him. Forgiveness from the judgment of God on judgment day and positively a new relationship with a God who loves you and experience it now and for all eternity. Again, I'll quote from Isaiah 55, three, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, an everlasting binding relationship with our God is a, it, when we come to him in faith and trust and relinquish any right to say that I am right and perfect and good enough before you. I trust in Jesus alone, in his life, in his death on the cross, paying the penalty for my sins. I trust in Jesus. You know, I've had people tell me I'm too far gone. Jesus can't help me. I can't be forgiven of the sins I've committed. And I've had people tell me kind of on the opposite side, well, I mean, that's what God does, right? God just forgives. That's his job. I mean, I sin. God forgives. That's his job. There's no need to believe in Jesus. Both of those are wrong. Jesus is willing. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus will forgive your sins if you would but come to him. And ask for forgiveness and trust in what he's done. And no, he won't automatically forgive your sins. You must understand that you're hungry. You must understand that you're starving. Not just physically, but spiritually. You need him and all that he can provide. You know, it's not just what Jesus gives, as important as it is. But coming to Jesus having that personal relationship with Jesus about God's spirit, that is what satisfies. Heather Holloman is an associate professor of teaching at Penn State University, and she says the following, I've lived long enough to know that what we pursue apart from Jesus does not satisfy. I've also lived long enough to know the kind of mental lists we make about what we imagine will bring us happiness. We think If only this were different, God might be enough for us if this one thing changed. Here are some examples of if onlys. If only I owned this possession. If only I had this particular person to love me. If only I could accomplish this specific thing. If only I lived in this location. If only I looked this way with this body, face, or wardrobe. If only I had a purpose like this. If only I could raise this type of family, I imagine. If only I could master this skill. If only I could experience this specific adventure I long for. If only people would see me in this particular way. The problem with if-onlys is that they don't deliver what they promise. Truly, they don't. My fight to want more didn't end when I earned my Ph.D., published, married, and had children. The if-onlys only continued, imprisoning me in discontentment and longing. They did not ever provide the unfailing love, acceptance, and joy that comes in the presence of Jesus. They don't ever ever provide the well-being and shalom peace of completeness and absolute contentment in the presence of the Prince of Peace. The women I know who've changed jobs husbands, noses, and cities, still suffer inside. The women I know who've earned PhDs, published books, traveled extensively, achieved fitness goals, or amassed wealth, still want more. And I close uh, with the words from Jordan Coughlin. This is a, a hymn that we sing from time to time. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life has led me to the grave, had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Jesus alone is satisfying. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this encouragement from your word and this reminder that we so often forget, that somehow, way, we need something else besides Jesus to satisfy us. You know we've got needs, and we come to you with those physical needs and those spiritual needs, and we're encouraged by this text today that Jesus is concerned about those things. He has compassion about those things. But we also are thankful that you meet our greatest needs for satisfaction, our greatest physical needs in resurrection and our greatest spiritual needs in eternal life and eternal relationship with you forever. And so we pray, Father, that for those who have never come into that relationship, that today by your spirit, you would open their eyes and their ears and their hearts and that they would place their faith And Jesus, who alone satisfies. And for the rest of us, that we would more and more endeavor to live our lives as ones who are seeking to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray this prayer. Amen.